Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Nathan Preheim, co-founder and general partner at Proven Ventures. Our conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Nathan Preheim is a serial entrepreneur in every way and can't help but concept new companies. Nathan has co-founded Proven Ventures, which offers a refactored approach to venture capital and invests in Nebraska startups that wish to start, grow, and stay in Nebraska. Prior to Proven Ventures, Nathan's many endeavors included co-founding MindMixer, a civic engagement startup that quickly scaled from zero customers to nearly 1,000 in just two years, eventually employing more than 75 employees across the Midwest. With Erica Wassinger, a prior guest on this show, Nathan also co-founded the startup Collaborative, an entrepreneurship catalyst. A San Francisco expat, Creighton University and University of Nebraska graduate, and now Midwest community leader, Nathan is a fixture on the startup scene and a guest on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, Stuart, I am honored and humbled. Looking forward to the conversation today. I would love to pretend that I was sophisticated in the ways of business and the world, but the truth is, actually, I really don't know how a lot of these industries really work. And so I'm really curious about what Proven Ventures does and what makes it special. So um, we sort of joke, we kind of broke all the rules and we rethought venture, which is really investing in new startup companies. But we wanted to do that uh, for Nebraska funders and Nebraska founders. So Stuart, the way I like to kick this off is I like to compare us to what traditional venture is, because this is an asset class that is a little bit mysterious. To be frank, not a lot of people uh, have participated. So there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of confusion. So effectively, what what venture is, is it's, it's risky stuff because it's typically the first money in. Typically, there's not a lot of proof points or traction. it's, it's an idea. It's a concept. It might be a blueprint. So these early investors are primarily putting money into the, the founding teams and their belief that those founders can take that concept or that blueprint and, and really grow and scale it. And when I mean grow and scale, venture is typically kind of a, a home run or a strikeout. And venture capitalists typically make, I'll just say, 10 investments, knowing full well that nine are going to crash and burn, but that one is such a great success story that effectively uh, returns the entire portfolio and makes up for all those failures. I I won't bore you. It came out of the valley where uh, 
silicon chip manufacturers needed a lot of investment capital to get these ideas off the ground. And what you have seen is most markets across the country have just taken that Bay Area playbook for venture and deployed it in their market. And Stuart, when Erica and I thought about deploying a venture model in Nebraska, it didn't make sense for us to just take that off the shelf. Imagine here in Nebraska, if I went to uh, a funder and said, hello, Nebraskan, this is our model. We're going to make 10 investments. Nine are going to fail. But don't worry, that one is going to be such a success. I don't feel good about that. That's just not who we are. That wouldn't resonate well. And I mean that in like the best way. We're way too prudent. We're way too practical. We don't have to swing for the fences and define success as a home run. Okay. So if if venture is a home run or nothing, what about singles and doubles? What about creating companies in our backyard that start here, grow here, stay here, that employ 25, 50, maybe 100 people, but like are founded on bedrock where uh, customers are the key and cash flow is important and you know, bootstrapping, all these things that are not only near and dear, but maybe in our DNA. So we kind of broke all the rules of traditional venture and said, if we were going to create a venture firm in Nebraska, what would it look like and how would we... How would we structure that? And the first thing is, is um, we don't have to swing for the fences. I'd much rather figure out how we can get people on base and forgive the baseball analogy. Uh, I know it's America's pastime, but it does help describe a model when you can ground it against, um, well, a pastime that most people understand. But you always have to follow the money. So traditional venture, if it's boom or bust, or if it's home run or nothing, the only way that venture capitalists return capital to their investors is if the company is acquired, it has to sell and or go public. And those things both take a lot of time and both those rarely happen. And honestly, if the company is acquired, it typically means a non-Nebraska company acquired that company. And then what happens is I don't think that's not good for Nebraska. So let me give you some examples. Sydney, Nebraska was famous for uh, creating a company called Cabela's. And Cabela's is sort of a world famous outfitter. Uh, sad story, Cabela's was acquired by Bass Pro Shop. Non-Nebraska company acquired Cabela's and look what happened. The jobs exited the state. And I actually don't know who won in that scenario. Certainly not Sydney. Certainly not Nebraska. I guess a handful of investors cashed a check. Bad for Nebraska. Again, the company was acquired. Um, TD Ameritrade was recently acquired, and that's a non-Nebraska entity. Schwab purchased them. What's going to happen for Nebraska? It's probably not going to be great, Stuart. We're probably going to lose some jobs. Um, Flywheel was one of, I think, Omaha's better startup success stories. And really respect, admire that founding team. They got acquired by WP Engine at Austin. What's going to happen? I think a lot of those jobs will, over time, siphon out. I don't know if that was great for Nebraska. But if venture only defines a win by an acquisition, because that's the only way those investors get paid out, I think there's a better way to do it. So prove it is not set up to honestly force or encourage an acquisition, or our North Star is not, how do we get companies acquired? I'll never forget, Stuart, I, I co-founded a company called MindMixer about 10 years ago really enjoyed what I was doing there. I was in a board room. We took on a lot of venture, way too much. 
and got some questions from the board. Good questions. Hey, how are things going? And in my eyes, I thought things were going swimmingly. Hundreds of paying customers, really good profit margin. We had about 100 employees in Omaha and Link at the time. And I would say that the work that we were was doing was inspiring, product market fit. I genuinely loved the teammates that we had recruited. And I, I, I thought things were going perfect. And, and one of the board members asked me, yeah, but who's going to acquire you? And I thought, well, I don't, I don't really know. That, I, that's not really what I'm sort of thinking about today. And, and they said, hey, listen, next board meeting, let's, let's talk about that. Who, who can you get in the way of? How can you get taken out? Let's, let's look at a list of potential acquirers. And that's a shame on me for not maybe recognizing what their North Star was. And I'll, I'll take it. I, I, had I known what I know today, I never would have done that deal. Because success in their eyes wasn't about how many jobs we had created, how successful the business was, what kind of cash we were generating. It was much more about the end return. And in their eyes, it's either sale or it's nothing. So again, I say this all to sort of describe what traditional venture is. And I actually think venture is a dirty word. And if someone calls me a venture capitalist, initially, I'm a little bit prickly about that because venture capitalists, it's about finding entrepreneurs that could grow companies that could effectively sell so that they could put more money in the pockets of their investors. And we just think there's a way better way to operate here. I love that you are recalibrating, redefining what success means and for whom. Before we get to that, we should have a conversation about how you go about making choices. There is money coming into you from investors that needs to be um, dispersed and invested into potential business concepts. So there's sort of the upstream view, as it were, the choices that you make, the criteria about who are your investors? And then this downstream set of criteria about what, what do you choose to invest in and what are you looking for? Um, love the question. And I think it's all internally consistent, which is what you would hope and dream for. So when we look up and we talk about the kinds of people that have been attractive to our model, it's not people who traditionally invest in venture. I'll offer up some stats here, and I'm really proud of these, by the way. Our average investor is probably mid to late 40s. We have as many women investors as we do men. And I would say that while the capital return is important, it is way deeper than that. Now, the question I've been asking myself here recently, Stuart, is you know, when you, when you put forth a thesis like we have, who self-selects in and wants to support that? And 
only good humans have so far raised their hand and said they wanted to be part of it. And I honestly, it might be like my most proud moment. So the layers of return are deep and meaningful. This is, this is way deeper than, than returning a 3x cash back to investors. We are creating companies in our backyard. These are the, what I call the innovation economy. I'm really concerned about brain drain. I really am. And we lose a lot of young women and men, and not even just young, just top talent across the board to other markets. I don't think they necessarily want to leave. They, they want to go to uh, markets that have more interesting professional opportunities. And one of the things that we're, we're trying to accomplish with this fund is let's keep more of our best and brightest here. Let's offer up a little bit more capital for them to start their businesses or these are the sort of the employers of tomorrow. So there is a capital return. We are looking across our state saying, we can build the state we want to live in by nurturing next generation companies in our backyard that are the jobs of tomorrow. And we can do it in a way where investors can lean in and genuinely help beyond capital. So who's, who's been attracted to that? Only good humans. The, the people that sort of look out across this state and will be here for the next couple of decades and say, I want to help transform Nebraska. I want to pull companies up from the ground. I want them to be um, going concerns. I want them to be sustainable. It is honestly, it's maybe the most inspiring um, thing that I've seen since we, since we started that. So if that's if we look up, that's sort of the profile. And by the way, they want to roll their sleeves up and they want to like lean in a little bit in service of founders, of course. These are men and women who have capacity. They have connections. They just, they genuinely want to help. Now, if that's kind of the profile of, of an investor, what are some of the entrepreneurs that have wanted to be part of this? I, I would say... Um, men and women that are, that are looking for way more than just capital. We, we described true partners where, um, yeah, the capital is nice, but, but we've got this great expression here, Stuart. When we, when we partner with a company, we deploy the cavalry. The cavalry is, and I just, again, this feels so Nebraska. We get behind these companies in all the ways. Okay. Yeah. You need a little bit of working capital, uh, of course, but now let's let's sit down around a table and let's figure out like what are some of the big pain points you have? Where do you want to take this company in the next 90 days? How can we deploy the cavalry to help you get there? And it's kind of magic and it's it's transformative and it's it's kind of a core thesis of our of our model. And it just feels so right. Just to give this some texture and color, is there a founding company, a founding team, a business concept that you've recently invested in that you could share? Yeah, I'd love to. There's a, a woman, Kelly Mann, Erica and I met her back in the days of the Startup Collaborative, where she was a, a real forward-thinking CPA. Her day job uh, was performing employee benefit audits. This is not super sexy stuff, but what I love about it, there's um, effectively a mandate. There's a requirement every employer over a hundred employees annually has to review and audit their employee benefit plan. And she was really good at this. Um, but the best entrepreneurs, you know, they always ask some, themselves, gosh, there's gotta be a better way to do this. 
So she sort of um, was not at all dissuaded by convention and developed a better way to do the audit. Uh, she layered in some, some clever tech to really simplify the process. Same outputs, but instead of uh, a laborious 60 to 80 hours, she was able to shrink that dramatically with a little bit of a tech-enabled solution. We've known Kelly for a long time, and she had some personal hardship in, in 2020, um, and she's, she talks about it, so it's not like this is something that she isn't comfortable having a share, but uh, battled, battled cancer and uh, emerged from that early this year. We've been keeping a close eye on her. Uh, she's our favorite kind of founder. She's honestly, she's tenacious. I think she's unstoppable. And, and she developed something clever. Well, when she reached out to us this spring and said, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to get back at it. Like this was a really easy decision for us. So we partnered up in the spring and I'll never forget the conversation we had at this very, very table. All right, Kelly, how can we lean in and how can we assist? And this is one of these where we, we made the we made the checklist and everything from I need some um, some insurance quotes to uh, I need some help doing some lead sourcing to how can we help get the story out through traditional media and public relations I I need some help thinking through pricing strategy I we're going to be hiring our first employee and I don't know what to do so what's the infrastructure that we have to have as an employer um, and then help me come up with a, a process to screen candidates and then build the on-ramp for the first 90 days. So this is, this is the exact kind of investment we, we want to make. She is really good at what she's done. She's come up with a really niche uh, solution. Now, as, as uh, someone who's embarking on that journey, how can we tap into the collective wisdom of our investors and offer up some of that brain trust and guidance and you know, beyond like compass and map, but like, oh, let's, let's help you chart this course. You're driving this bus. We are all here as navigator. We're here in case that bus breaks down. And our, our LPs, limited partners, the folks that have invested in us, I think they're having as much fun leaning in and helping her as, as she is sort of driving that, that bus. to ask you about entrepreneurs as a type of person, characteristics of 
and also the system more broadly. And earlier you mentioned the phrase innovation economy. And, and so I'm thinking about the Nebraska ecosystem for entrepreneurship. And I'm sure you've got views on both of these. So, so we'll start individual and then maybe expand out. So you describe Kelly Mann as the classic entrepreneur who asks the question, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then you describe some attributes like tenacious. From your perspective, what makes a good entrepreneur? I don't know if they're the best corporate citizens, meaning they, they're not afraid to break rules or bend rules. Uh, they're not comfortable with status quo. Uh, they think about better ways to deliver the product or the service. They're not bound by conventional thinking. They're dreamers. They're creative. We joke they're kind of the crazy ones, but I mean that in the most endearing, endearing way. There's actually two paths or there's two parts. There's, there's innovation and then there's entrepreneurship. I think those are two separate skills. The innovators are the ones that come up with the new IP, the new intellectual property or the new recipe or the, the new way of, of doing something. Entrepreneurship is then carrying that forward into the market. Every once in a while, Stuart, you'll meet someone who can actually wear both hats and they are, they are, the, they are the unicorns. Mostly you have someone that came up with the, the, the novel thing and then someone else is able to sort of get it into market. Kelly Mann is, is certainly someone that fits both sides. But if you actually look at Nebraska and if you think about our economy and, and how this great state was formed, we, we have a lot of agrarian roots. We have a lot of men and women in ranching and farming. I think they are all entrepreneurs. They typically work for themselves. There's nothing guaranteed in terms of a, a paycheck. They don't draw salary from a corporation. Uh, their success is tied to their, frankly, their ability to take risk and to shoulder that responsibility. I also like um, these, this genre of, of, a, of an employee because they, they have to tinker. They have to sort of discover. If you're in the field and the farm and, and something breaks down, you just you're gonna have to fix it. So I, I actually think we maybe have um, a fondness for calculated risk based on you know our pioneer spirit. The challenge here is when we think about that next gen, if we're not encouraging them to think a little bit different, if if we're only defining success as go through school, get a degree. And then go work for somebody else. And if if the dream job is is some kind of a, a corporate gig where you gradually climb the ladder and then you, you you get the home with the fence, and I think that's really damaging. We have to be sure we let folks know that there is an alternative path, or it's okay to think a little bit different. It's okay to invest a little bit more time and energy to make sure that you understand that you you can maybe go work for somebody, but you can also sort of do your own thing and be a, be an entrepreneur. How do you describe, how do you think of, how do you talk about the entrepreneurial ecosystem within the Midwest? We're one of these markets where we tend to fly under the radar. I, I just saw a, a tweet, I think a couple of days ago. There are, there are four startups in Lincoln, Nebraska that are well on their way to being worth over a billion dollars. Four. That's pretty remarkable. Part of this is maybe kind of who we are at our core. We, we, we aren't pompous. We, we are maybe not as ostentatious as we probably should. 
uh, we just sort of fly under the radar and we don't talk about necessarily the successes that we're having across the board. And I think there's way more things happening here than most people realize. People don't know what they don't know. And how many men and women in, I'll just say greater Omaha or greater Nebraska for that matter, could name their top five startups. And I think that's a, that's a problem. And I think we should probably do more to um, get people to stretch their thinking about that a little bit or be able to answer that question. And Stuart, I would maybe until, until everybody in this state has a startup or two they're rooting for, we, we may not be in a really, really good position. I love that question because, of course, I hope listeners are playing along with this as well. But you ask a question, name your top five startups, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Okay, okay. Um, but I did hesitate for a few seconds before I started to come up with, I can remember when MindMixer started, I was intrigued by the civic engagement side of that. That was interesting to me. You mentioned Flywheel. That's another great one. I don't know a huge amount about Huddle or Build a Trend, but, but they emerged to mind. But then I want to move away as well from perhaps some of the more virtual ones. And I think about people like Chris Hughes and Artifact, and I'm not sure if that fits, but think about that too. Well, where I think we fall down is uh, startup has meant tech startup. And I don't like that at all. And I think that's one type of startup. Anytime a man or woman steps forward and creates a new business from scratch, whether it's a service-based business, whether it's a retail store, or it's a tech-enabled flower shop, that in my mind is a startup. And we shouldn't be bound by you know, only, only thinking tech. But I, I heard this really interesting stat yesterday. And um, for every $100 that is spent on Amazon, effectively only pennies trickle back into the local economy. For every $100 that is spent on a local merchant, $92 of that 100 stays local. So now I start sort of having some fun. And I actually would hear me out on this. This would be an incredible challenge for Nebraska, the entire state. What percentage of our goods and services could we purchase from vendors, companies, established and startups that operate in the state? That would be a really, really fun challenge. This, you know, you're, you're talking about sort of some, some broader ecosystem here. I think most people, if they had the choice to patron the, the, the homegrown versus the, the Amazon behemoth, I, I, I don't think there's any question. But some of this is also just sort of surfacing this. And then I, I go back to it, right? Like, shouldn't we know, um, shouldn't we know as, as a community, uh, who are the, the hundred companies that, that started up uh, in, in October of this year? And which were the hundred that started up in November of this year? And uh, what's the product that they're offering? And, and, and what's the profile of that founding team? If more people had access to that kind of content, I think more people would, would really, really want to patron those, those entrepreneurs. Take to the streets 
with the self-made grace. What you get is what you see. There's no sense in trying to get underneath. All the color drained from your face, all the stitches in place. It'll be okay. It's too shallow to hold your breath, but it's deep enough that you gotta swim. Okay. I found you painting the window shut with your bleeding heart. And you're broken love It'll be okay I learned to walk so I could get in the way I hope the cool kids watching us now Got nothing to say I really appreciated you describing your investors as being pretty equally men and women. So I really appreciate this breaking down perhaps some perceptions about who are investors. I also want to ask though, what work needs to be done so that we're encouraging other risk and other access for uh, African-Americans and native investors for people that would maybe define themselves as non-binary or differently abled in all sorts of different ways. So I'm just thinking about how much work needs to be done to kind of expand what we think of as this venture ecosystem uh, to be maybe more equitable, maybe more open to different types of investors, types of startups, types of people. I am so proud of the work that Erica and I did at, at the Greater Omaha Chamber with, with the Startup Collaborative. And this is this was a program we built primarily for first-time founders with the whole goal of radically improving their odds of startup success. We put over 500 men and women through that program. Almost half were women or people of color. Now, Stuart, we had aspirations of, of taking that program across the entire state. And there's still a chance that we do that because, well, I mean, the work was incredible and meaningful to me where you, know, you had people that had kind of the spark of a dream and just didn't know sort of where to go and how to take that first step. And, and there's so much, I'll say it, there's so much misdirection offered up by some of the service providers. Oh, you have to incorporate. You have to get a logo. And the reality is that's garbage. It's, it's, that couldn't be further from the truth. What tends to get glorified in the media is that a lot of these really successful Startups are, are young white guys, and, and we, we saw the opposite to be true at the Startup Collaborative. I'll be honest, I'm partial to women CEOs. They do the work. They do the work. And some of my favorite founders that we worked through the program were, were people of color. I, I'm, it's not lost on me that I was, I was born into privilege. I, I own it. I admit it. And, and because of that, I, I started up several rungs on the ladder. And there was nothing more powerful than, than helping someone who maybe didn't start where I did, not pulling them up, but working with them to, to ascend there and take that, that life dream they've always had. And how do we help turn that into a sustainable business that effectively turns their passion into their livelihood? So the, the good news here, Stuart, is entrepreneurship is colorblind. And, and ironically, if, if you... If you actually dig into the data, the data is not doesn't show that some of the most successful companies are 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 formed by young white guys. 
most successful entrepreneurs are tend to be a little bit older. They tend to be immigrants or children of immigrants. And having worked in that capacity, I, I can point to dozens of success stories that are, are you know, what I'll call quote unquote atypical founders. Um, lots of women, lots of lots of color. And the future isn't old and it's not white. You know, the markets of tomorrow are are really colorful. And I I love that. But but where I where I get concerned is we tend to put a lot of resources into those quote unquote high growth, high scale tech startups. And that gets all the sizzle and all the glamour. I don't think that should be the North Star or we should set an ecosystem up to only back those kinds of companies. I'll tell you, I, I think we've got it upside down. I think we should be offering up way more resources to help you know, men and women start you know, cash flowing companies that, that don't define exit as success, more about like, let's get this to be a going concern. Let's get this to cash flow. Let's, let's set this up for, for generations. I hope that Eric and I are able to continue some of the work that we, we started with the Startup Collaborative because um, the outcomes were, were meaningful and, and significant. Let's turn this to you then. Was there a moment when you realized, oh, I didn't know the label for it, but I was and I am an entrepreneur? Yeah, I'm different. Uh, and you know, that's both good and bad. Um, you, know, you look at some of my early grades and transcripts in high school, college. I, I'm not like the best student in the world. And I'm not the kind of student that asks the teacher, hey, uh, uh, tell me how I get an A on this class and I'll sort of work backwards and, 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 and do it. And in that sense too, I, I was, I've always been, I've always been curious. I am just a lifelong, long learner. And when you're not sort of bound by systems and structure, you just see the world in a little bit of a different way. I remember um, my, both my parents were raised on, on farms and at a very young age, my dad had this great line and I'll never forget it. And he said, hey, son, you know, you either, you either make the rules or you follow the rules. 
and I'm not attributing that. I, I, I doubt he was the very first person who, who, who coined it, but that was really, really fundamental on my pathway. And, you know, for better, or for worse, Stuart, I was not this guy that, you know, at, at the age of six knew that I was going to be a firefighter or a policeman or a teacher. I didn't have like a really prescriptive pathway. I just sort of observed and I always kept um, kind of a notebook of problems or frustrations that I, I had in life. And I, I tended to not get fixated on that. I saw that as inspiration. Okay, well, that's a pain point or a problem or friction or something I don't like. How can I actually build a solution against that? Maybe one of the best things that happened to me because I didn't want to follow that, that, regular, that regular pathway of getting sort of a corporate stodgy job. Uh, when I applied for a startup in Omaha back in 99, I didn't get I didn't get it. So I went to California and I worked for a startup. And I think that's really when, when everything, everything, everything sort of cemented at that point. These are my people. This is my flock. Let's do new innovative things. Let's push boundaries. Let's break all the rules. Let's turn industries upside down. Let's think about what the future is and not the past. What was your childhood like? Uh, oldest of three. Um, suburban household. My dad's a teacher. Um, we moved to London when I was 15. Uh, he set up a research experiment at a, a hospital in London. And you talk about an impressionable age, right? Here I am 15, m- maturing, drop into probably uh, you know, the most cosmopolitan city in the world. And I was old enough to just explore on my own. I just, you, you just contrast what, what, what made a ton of sense in America and, and more of a suburban environment, like didn't make sense in a really dense urban environment and just the, you know, the architecture and the, the people and the traditions. I loved it. And then, and then after that, having the chance to explore Europe a little bit, <laughs> it was, oh, the world is a beautiful palette. And, uh, seeing different perspectives and knowing that there's not like a single way, I think had a really, really good influence on me. I'm wondering what else you have learned about who you are and who you want to be as part of this 20 plus year journey through entrepreneurship and innovation. I feel like I was sort of put on this earth to help people kind of realize their their entrepreneurial dreams. And I sort of joked about that teacher. I I really enjoy that work. I really do. Where uh, coaching, encouraging, rallying. You can do this. You should do this. Life is short. You will regret if you don't do this. And you literally have nothing to lose and everything to gain. So I'm willing and I would enjoy holding your hand and helping give you the confidence to do it. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm just sort of seeing some of the fortune I've been able to live and how do I help sort of scale that across? Now, like people still have to want to do it. The last thing I want to do is, is push someone in a, in a path they don't want to do. I am blessed and so fortunate. And you know, maybe I get a little bit more introspective as I get a little bit older. I've had a wonderful life. I've, I've taken a few swings and I've stumbled quite a bit. Um, and each of those setbacks sort of actually paved the way for the next journey. But I got to say, I'm, I'm a little bit 
you know, if you look at my career, Stuart, crowdsourcing is something I just keep coming back to. It's the wisdom of the crowds. My very first startup was called Daytipper, where we, we took concepts, tips, uh, useful nuggets of intel. We sourced that for men and women across the world. And then we republished that content, tribal tips, parenting tips, finance tips, health tips. I love that work, um, effectively helping others live their best lives. If you look at MindMixer, MindMixer is sort of an extension of that where MindMixer sourced the best ideas from, from not the loudest voice of, of the community, from he or she who had the best idea, a true meritocracy. And we funneled those best ideas back to elected officials and stakeholders and said, the, this is what you should be focusing on. This is the will of the people. What we're doing at Proven Ventures, you could almost argue, is we're crowdsourcing the talents of our investors to double down and assist that next generation. I, that's, that's, that's my playbook. And, and I don't know if it's because my forefathers and mothers were Mennonites and we tend to live and think more communally. Um, I, I, I can't, I, maybe, probably. I love that because I, I think it gives us an opportunity to close by talking about success, which feels like a good place to end. And I, I think it was just off air. You were talking about, you know, a, a, a triple win, a sort of triple bottom line, as it were. And I feel like that question of what does success look like and for whom is an important one if we're thinking about the work you do beyond just dollars. And so I wonder if you might just talk about how you think about success, obviously for yourself, the work you do, the person that you are, but then more broadly, what you think success needs to be framed as big picture. So this is really top of mind right now. Why is the goal to always cash out and retire early? I had the chance to uh, move back in with my folks this summer, I was doing some house remodeling and, um, it was great. We, we lived three generations, my kids, myself, and my parents, my, my kids won here, obviously. My dad had a, a pretty uh, illustrious career. One of the hardest working guys I know, recently retired. And uh, he said to me, you know, uh, Nathan, I really, I really miss interacting with my colleagues. I miss the mental pablum. I miss their company. And, and I was thinking, well, what's the goal here? If the goal is to just try and accrue as much cash as you possibly can and define that as success, I think that's a hollow win. And I look at the people that I respect and I admire, and they stay in the game into, into the twilight era, into their 80s and 90s, you know, use it or lose it kind of thing. And to me, there's nothing more powerful than sort of doing what you love. And I think people should have the option, the ability to do that for as long as they want to. And I worry about folks that sort of chase money and I, I worry about chasing materialism and I worry about those that chase to, yeah, Stuart, I'm sure you've heard, like everyone is aspiring for FU money. FU money is when you literally have enough money in the bank where you can just say FU to your employer and walk off the job. And you know, a lot of people are trying to get FU money as early as possible. And I think to myself, that sounds dreadful. What if, what if you didn't have a calling? What if you didn't have a career? What if you didn't have 
professional challenge to solve anymore and you were effectively cashed out and done at 35, 40, 45, how would you spend the rest of your life? Success is a little bit deeper. I think to me, um, I have a theory. My theory is that most of the people who cash out early regret it in the end. And I, I think it's about doing what you love with people you love working with. And the, the more we can support that, encourage that, then I think the better off we'll all be. My guest today has been Nathan Preheim, co-founder and general partner at Proven Ventures. Nathan, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you so much. You're good at what you do, Stuart. I appreciate it. Thanks for the time. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Yeah.